morning, everyone. Good morning. Mm-hmm. Hope this day finds you well and blessed. Amen. Amen. Alrighty, so the portion of scripture we have today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 to 22. We'll be finishing off the chapter today. So when you, when you, whether you have your phone or whether you have the physical pages, please turn to that portion of scripture and then stand if you're able. And we'll read through it together. Starting in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of, God, of men, God tests them, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. But what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity." All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceived that nothing is better than a man should rejoice in his works, for that, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Let's pray. Lord, just thank you so much for this day, for the breath in our lungs, the sun in the sky, and for bringing us here to this place that we may fellowship and learn from your word. Pray, Lord, that as the word is spoken today, that it would go forth into the hearts and the ears of those who are listening, and that it may bring forth a harvest for your kingdom, Lord. Lord, we have your promise that your word will not return void, and I pray that, Lord, you would take this and accomplish your will in our lives. Pray all this in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. So as I was searching for a title for today's message, I was reading, looking at the title that they, those who translate it ain't going to. They say, <clears throat> they said, in my translation, New King James says, Injustice seems to prevail. And while it is a key part in the beginning, it's not the universal theme of the passage. Other translations I've seen translate this, they put this title, Dust to Dust. And while that is, that takes us back to the book of Genesis, it reminded me also of, <laughs> reminded me of a song that Keith Green wrote by the same title. I won't, for the interest of time, I won't sing the whole thing, but there's a chorus, the chorus goes like this. Sometimes it's hard to see Sometimes it's hard to get through to me Cause it's dust to dust Until we learn how to trust That brought a whole new, different perspective to me on that one And then I got thinking of what Solomon wrote later That said, one fate for all And I thought, now that is profound That no matter what we do, no matter where we go In the end, one thing waits for everybody And from a world perspective, that can be a very 
a very morbid thing. But if you look at it from an eternal perspective, it brings on a whole new meaning. And that is what I will speak on today, with God's guidance, of course. So looking at the first two, oh, pardon me, before I go into the verses, I look at my three main points today. So when thinking about one fate for all, my first point was whether we do good or evil, in the end, all will answer to God. Let's think about that. Whether, we, whether, our, whether our hearts stand with God or against Him, in the end, everybody is going to face God in the end. As the scripture tells us, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And that's this thing about the moments in Scripture when God has met people, where do they all end up? Right on their face. And in a sense, that's the, that's the perfect place to be before God. There's actually the seven different Hebrew words for praise. The third one is baruch, which means to bow. And that's what we see in Scripture. Moses falls on his face. Moses, was, Moses and Isaiah and others have all recognized that as soon as they know they're in God's presence, they are immediately humbled because they know just how mighty he is, and that in the end, they're going to be the ones who answer to him, not the other way around. The second main point that I look at is physical death is an inescapable part of life in a fallen world. And that's that's a truth we've known ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit. In a sense, that's Physically, that's the only life we've ever known. The only two people who have known a life beyond that in this world were Adam and Eve themselves. And yet, the, the physical death is only a part of it, but in a sense, I'm encouraged by that because, that I'll touch later on my method, message, that's a state that God never wanted us for us in the first place, and it's a state he refused to leave us in. And that, in a sense, is the big, whole beginning of, literally, his story. They call it, some people call it the scarlet thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation, that God is seeking after us, and the best thing we can do is turn and uh, embrace him. And he, I like the way that C.S. Lewis put it one time. He said that we, as people, are not bodies with souls attached. Rather... We are souls with a body attached. So even though this body will die, that's not the essence of who we are. It will continue through to eternity. In fact, I like some of the way other people put it, that this is a, just a shell of clay, and who we are is beyond all that. And that leads into my third main point, that death is not the end for us. It is simply a gateway to eternity. Like they say, death is just a moment, and then eternity is forever. That's very encouraging for me because, after all, think about it, this, this whole life, they say, is just a drop in the ocean. Etern- the people who want to say, live your best life now, really? Just live, live my best life for this long? And eternity is this? A very short-sighted attitude. But like, but as I said before, that's on, it, it requires an eternal perspective. Without that, then this is all there is from the world's point of view. 
And that, in a sense, is why Solomon said, all is vanity. Because if this is all you see, then anything, then anything that you can't imagine, or anything that takes place here, then you think this is all that matters, that is the vanity. But let's explore this deeper, shall we? Looking at the first two verses, verses 16 and 17, where he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So, looking about, thinking about that, I thought first that if people... I was looking through this and, and the scripture said, or the translation commentary, he said, if people don't have the fear of God in their hearts, then as we saw in verse 16, the natural result is going to be oppression and persecution of others. In the sense, that if you reject God, if, you're not, if you don't have the fear of him living in you, then you're going to try to make yourself God in your own way. So you, want to, you want to work your own will, and if people don't follow that, what happens? You start to oppress them. You try to bring them into submission, and if they still refuse to resist, if you refuse to submit, then you start persecuting them. That's, the, that's literally the way of the world. Anyone who doesn't bow down, get them. We see that happening in our own country. We see it across the world. The people strive after worldly power, and their own honor. That's the end result of not having the fear of God in your life. But, for those who pursue such a path, there are two things that will follow that many don't realize. The first is that, as Solomon said, all is vanity, power, and life itself, without godly fear, are nothing. And think after all, as he said, you have this long, and if you live for that, after that, what have you got? Nothing. Job reflects on it earlier in his own book. They quote, we came into this world with nothing, and we'll leave with nothing. As they say, you never see any U-Hauls following a hearse. Yeah, you can't take it with you, literally. And the second thing that we see is that people who live for worldly power and the worldly honor, in the end they will be held accountable for all that they've done. I mean, people think, live your best life now, I can get away with anything. Oh really? You haven't met the guy who won't let you get away with anything face to face yet. But you will. And then when they get there and they realize they have lived completely without honor for God, they're like uh-oh trouble now and but the trouble the sad thing is that that's only when the trouble starts interesting enough that's where we see in john chapter 5 verses 28 through 29 i'll turn there real quick see luke john there we go john 5 okay so starting in verse 28 jesus is speaking he says quote unquote Oh, so I'll find me, I was starting in verse see, 28. Ah, here we go. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And that's what we see forecast in the book of Revelation. We see, we hear both the, the judgment, we see the, the marriage feast of the Lamb, in the sense where God is going to refine us, like pushing our lives through the refiner's fire, and everything that's impure and unholy, or anything that's temporal, is going to be burned away, and only the eternal glory of God is going to be left. And whether you have a lot or you have a little depends on what you decide, what you allowed God to do with your life. But that is not something we. That's not a judgment we need to fear, because after all, yes, we want to have a lot, but ultimately the prize is eternal life with Christ. But we should desire to have lived much for Him, because that will only increase the glory that we give God in the end. But then on the flip side, we see in Revelation chapter 20, that's when we see the white throne of judgment. And that will be the condemnation that's spoken of in verse 29. That's when, the, that's when all the evil of the world will be judged and all those who are not found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of burning fire, the eternal condemnation. Hmm. So whether, it's like I said in my first point, whether we, are, we do good or evil, we will all reap in the end, after we're raised from the dead, we will all reap the eternal fruit of our choices. Okay. And that's what we see reflected later on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. Here we go. Let's see, 27 and 28, here we go. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment... So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And I thought about thinking back to the irony of Christ's two comings. They say in the first coming, they they expected a warrior king, but he came as a suffering prophet. And in his second coming, people will expect him as a suffering prophet, but he'll come as the conquering king. But even more than that, in Christ's first coming, he came to die and rise again, facing the judgment of God so that we didn't have to. But in his second coming, and like I said, revealed later in Revelation, he will come to bring everlasting life to those who believe in him, and everlasting death to those who have refused to believe him. It's ironic that he came to face judgment the first time, and in the second time, he will come as the judgment. A very sobering thought. And, very, and one that should fuel us to preach and to live for God, live God's word, so that those who are not with God will turn and live with him live for him, will turn to become new in him, so that they don't have to face that judgment either. Continuing on to verses 18 and 19, we saw Solomon says, I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them, so that they may see that they themselves are like animals. But what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. 
As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. So the first time, when I first read verse 18, I'm like, man's no different from animals? What are you saying here? But then as I read deeper, I saw, began to see the details that God was revealing to me. First we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31, there's a bit of an answer to this. Let's see, Genesis... Okay, going back to... Ah, there it is. All the way to the beginning. Verses, so chapter 1, verses 24 through 31. It says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its their kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the field, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the field according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Bit of a lengthy passage for a tie-in, I know, but still. The point, what I was thinking, is that there are several points. The first one was that animals and humans were created on the same day. That yes, on the previous day we saw God bring forth the birds and the fish, but he waited till the sixth day to make animals, and then, the crowning achievement, humans. And interestingly enough, looking at the science behind it, especially if you look at the biology, animals and human bodies share many structural details. You look at our skeletons, the way that we're built inside. We, we, we're very different from animals in spirit and in mind, but the great we have, in a sense, in our structure, we have a great physical resemblance is a wonder to me. In a sense, that's part of the, what they say, the intelligent design, that yes, we're unique in our, in our individuality as a, as a species, but that God shows his design all across creation. But it's also good to recognize that while we have many physical details that we share with animals, we are also all susceptible to the same things. The ancient Greeks called them the three fates. The ways that we die. There's disease, where we can become ill and die. There's injury, 
whether by accident or intentionally, as in war, or old age. All three of them affect everything. Well, that similarity is there. We also see in Job chapter 14 that there are also great differences. So turning backwards to, here we go, Job chapter 14. Here we go. Starting in verse 7 of the chapter. For there is hope for a tree if it is cut down that it will sprout again and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. So I was just thinking about, as I'm thinking about that, that God's design for nature is very different, in a sense, from what he designed for animals and humanity. That as Job observed, a plant will die. Say, like, if a tree is struck by lightning or is chopped down, its stump is still capable of bringing forth new life. But animals and plant, the animals and humans, we live, and in the physical sense, we die. So that only happens once per per being. After that, nothing comes. Then looking again, in the next part, we get Romans chapter 1, verses... 22 through 25. Let's see. Romans. Ah. And this is, in a sense, looking at the nature of the fallen world as Paul was observing it. Starting in verse 22. Speaking of the, those who have rejected God, who live by worldly honor and for worldly power. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And thinking back to what we saw in even this, in the Old Testament, you know, as far back as Genesis, we've seen that ever since ancient times, we have witnessed the worship of nature and humanity itself. We see, like we've seen in ancient cultures, like the mother goddess of the earth. We've seen the different idols that have been put together in the form of animals, or even sometimes with a mixture of animal and humanity. Even today, we see people talk about, oh, serving the earth or helping to, helping to save the environment, climate change. This worship of nature has not stopped. And why do we do it? 
or we, we, I mean collectively humanity, not those here. I know we worship God, but those who would not worship God try to do so. And the reason why is that those who deny God's existence and authority try to substitute anything they can. Why do they do it? Because if they, they admit that God exists and that he has authority and power, they ultimately have to answer to him. And in the fallen world, nobody wants to do that. But, as we've seen elsewhere in Scripture, and as we see today, those who try to live like that find themselves in a very interesting position. And for that, I turn to my namesake, Daniel the prophet. And, yeah, I turn to Daniel chapter 4, verses 30 to 31. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, this will be a, a very apropos part of Scripture. So in chapter 2 of Daniel, we saw the whole vision of the statue and its interpretation, looking at the, hist- looking at the, uh, the coming history of the Middle East. And then we see in chapter 3, there was the image of gold with the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in a sense, was shown a great truth, but, well, he just say he missed it by that much, getting the whole point. So God came around for round 3. And here's what we see in verses 30 and 31. Okay. It says, The king spoke, saying, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And as it follows afterwards, Nebuchadnezzar in his pride, both with the statue of gold and here with his own words, has tried to boast of his own power, his own accomplishments, his own sense of glory. And God said, yeah, that's what you value. Guess what? Not yours anymore. And for the next seven years, God literally left him in the state of an animal. He lost his mind. He went out and was crawling on all fours, eating grass like a cow. His nails were like claws. And literally, for the next seven years, he was, well, he was the outcast. And only after that seven years passed did God allow him to have his own mind again. And he recognized that, yes, you are God. You are mightier and more glorious than I do, than I am, and I answer to you. So people in power, like Nebuchadnezzar before, consider themselves to be great. But ultimately, because God has said, those who lift themselves up in pride, he will humble them. And like Nebuchadnezzar, sometimes in ways they'd never even imagined. I doubt doubt Nebuchadnezzar was thinking in the palace, oh, tomorrow when I say this, I'm going to end up out there in the wilderness, out among the wild cattle, eating just like they do. But in a sense, that is a, that is a, great, a very great thing that God recognizing, saying God's presence, who he is and who you are not. But in a sense, as a child of God, yes, we don't have to live on all fours like, like trembling in fear before God. We just have to recognize who we are before him.
It's like C.S. Lewis's words in Prince Caspian. And as, as Caspian is becoming king of Narnia, he learns that his people, the Telmarines, are actually descendants from pirates from the, from the world that, that the four Pevensies come from, from our world. And he's thinking, I wish I came from a more honorable lineage. And Aslan, an image of Jesus, says to him, You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the mightiest emperor on earth. Be content. Exactly. And I think that's a great thing that God shows us, that we don't have to be lift ourselves up. We don't have to beat ourselves down. Just be content with who he has made us. And in the sense, they say that death is the great equalizer. So in the physical sense, of course, we die and become dust just as the animals do. And then in, in death, they say that all are humbled. Whether you were the greatest or the least, physically, we all end up in the same place. And that is, in a sense, as it should be. Because God made us all equal, none of us greater than the other in the, in the eternal sense, and that's where we should have, always have our mindset. And since that's in a sense how we say, love your neighbor as yourself, how do you do that if you think your neighbor is greater or if you think you are greater? Then drawing through the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 22, we saw, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? In a sense, Solomon's son just repeating the, the, the fate of man as God declared it in the book of Revelation, in the book of Genesis, pardon me, the only half of the book. So let's see. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 17 through 19, and then again, verses 22 to 24, we read this. As God is pronouncing judgment on the, th on the three of the garden, the serpent, the woman, and the man, we now see the judgment on man. Bless you, times two. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which, of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And continuing verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, 
and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. A very heavy portion of scripture, but one that holds a deeper truth beyond what the immediate teaching says. So in a sense, God declared in this passage of scripture that death would, to an extent, reverse the process of creation. This is not just something that happened once. We see later on in Genesis, when God brought the flood, he literally undid everything he created. He brought down rain and water from the sky to, in a sense, undo the order that he brought through chaos. He washed the land that he raised out of the water, he placed back under the water. Everything that lived on the land that wasn't in the ark died. But what's more beyond that is that, yes, God showed us that, yes, death is now going to be an inevitable part of life as long as the world has fallen. But, as I said, this is not a state he wanted us to stay in forever. And that is why he kept us away from the tree of life. We are not meant to eat of that fruit again until God has made the world new and his kingdom has come, as we see in Revelation 21. That's when the tree of life will be everywhere. And nowhere will the tree of knowledge of good and evil be. In a sense, people, I guess people sometimes wonder what would it have been like had we eaten from the tree of life. And actually, some people have actually given a possible answer to that. How many of you have, have ever heard or seen the story of Tuck Everlasting? Uh, It's a story from the 1970s, a fictional story in which a young girl named Winnie meets a family of four, um, husband and wife and their two grown sons, who have, as they were traveling westward through the United States, found a spring in a forest, and when they drank from that spring, they became physically immortal. They They basically are in the same state they were as when they first drank from that water. The interesting thing about the three, the, look at the three fates. The Tuck family can still feel hunger and pain and thirst, but they cannot physically die. I mean, there's accidents that happen to them where they can fall 30 feet and get up as if nothing happened. They can be attacked by an animal and they won't, be, they won't bleed. They can go through anything, but they cannot grow old or die. And for some, that sounds like immortal, like a great sense of being, but consider this. The world around them is changing and growing and, in a sense, heading for the end, but they're stuck. They can't change. Nothing can happen for them. And that's what Angus, will, the, Angus the father, talks to Winnie about. He says, quote, that's the life changing, teeming with the world's teeming with it. That's the way the world is. See things being born, people living, things die, and then there's us. What we tucks have, you can't call it living. We just are. We're stuck like rocks in the side of a stream. And he they talk to Winnie about whether or not she should drink from that stream. Do you want to stay stuck as you are? Right now, forever? Then he replies, 
I don't want to die. Is that wrong? He's, Angus says, no. No sane human does. But that's just it. It's part of the wheel. Same as being born. You can't have living without dying. Then he ends up with something very interesting. Don't be afraid of death, Winnie. Be afraid of the unlived life. And of course, Angus is not talking about you only live once or live your best life now. He's being much more serious than that. He's simply trying to say, don't live your life in fear of death. And of course, as he said, no sane person wants to die. You shouldn't go out looking for death because, oh, I want, I want to live. That's not his message at all. What he's saying, in a sense for us as a Christian, that's to say, can you truly live for God and fulfill his purpose for you if you're afraid of death? If you allow the fear of, oh, I'm a, this will be the, if I do this, it'll mean the death of a friendship, or it'll mean I, I won't get to enjoy the wealth that I have. No. It's simply saying that something is more important than the death of your, or your, the death of your body or the death of your relationships. It means that you are living without the fear that you're going that something else will end. Like I said before, death is only a temporary thing. What we should live for is eternity. Hmm. And in a sense, we see that elsewhere in Scripture. See, uh, my next portion is going to be in Second Samuel chapter twelve, verses twenty-one to twenty-three. Ah, here we go. So at verse 21, this is, this, this is where we see King David. Chapter 21. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. Then he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me and the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And to give some of the backstory on this, this, is, this has come in Second Samuel after David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his soldiers, and after he has arranged the death of her husband, Uriah, in battle. He sent him into battle, told his commander, put him in the front lines and have everybody else jump back so that he'll die in battle. And this is not just an ordinary soldier, this is one of David's mighty men that's mentioned. He was like a super soldier, a commando. And the child that's in question here is the child of David and Bathsheba's adultery, but to a greater point, this child was Solomon's biological brother. And yes, so another point is that, yes, well, this, after this comes after Nathan, had, the prophet, has come and confronted David, telling the story about the two men, one rich man with huge flocks and herds, and then one poor man who had a little, a little lamb. And the poor man's lamb was taken by the rich man to feed his guest. David said, this guy deserves to be punished. And David said, or David hears from Nathan, 
that guy, that is you, David. You had all of Israel, and you chose to take another man's wife. And that, and part of God's judgment on David is the death of this child. And it's always a tragedy when someone dies in their prime or without having lived their full life. But because we know that, because we believe in the age of accountability, we know that this child went to be with God as soon as he died. And yes, God was not judging this child for the sins it hadn't committed. He was judging David for what he had done. David had to feel the consequences for what he had done to this woman, to this child, to all of Israel. And so, both later on in Ecclesiastes, as we see, it says that people will all die. This is something that both Solomon and David recognized, that whether we live or die, always it is in the hands of God. Something we see we see Solomon recognize in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1, which I will quickly turn there real quick. Solomon says, thinking of this, 27 verse 1, he says, quote, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And this is reflected later on in the, in the writings of one of Jesus' earthly brothers, in particular, his brother James. See this in chapter 4, verse 13 through 15 in the James. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. In a sense, it's a piece of conventional wisdom that even the secular world recognizes. They say, there's a very famous saying, saying, remember, tomorrow is promised to no one. Who said that? Walter Payton, a man that the world holds in great regard, and even he recognized, yes, we have today, but we don't know if we'll have tomorrow. But as I've said previously, this is a, a great encouragement we can draw from this, is that, yes, this life, we only limit to live once. But thankfully, thanks by God's grace, this life is not all we have. We see in Romans chapter 14, verse 8, the next little bit, let's see, let's see 14, ah, here we go. And the Apostle Paul says to the Romans, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And that is the great encouragement we can have that even in death, our identities in Christ are not changed. And Paul mentions this, something of like this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 54. Find that portion. Ah, there it is. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, towards the end. 
pardon me if I take a little while getting there. Dry fingers and dry paper don't mix well. Okay, there we go. So chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 51. Okay, here we go. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible will must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on Im- immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. So, in our present time, we can recognize that, yes, God has taken the sting out of death, and we don't have to fear it in this life. But, the part of our great hope in Christ is that we will both experience and bear witness to the final victory over death in God's heavenly kingdom. If Michelle and Isaiah want to come up, this is the time. So in the sense that, yes, as we see in Revelation, we will be all raised out of the grave, whether we, those who are, whether we, if we have died and gone to the grave, believing in Christ's resurrection, we will experience that first resurrection but more so, as those who stand in God's kingdom and God's and in Christ's redemptive power, we will see the second resurrection, in the sense that we will live forever in God's heavenly presence, and that is why we need never ever fear death, because death has been overcome by He who died, has risen again, and will live forever. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this day that we can come together once again to learn and be fed from your word. I pray, pray, Lord, that you just continue to draw us more and more into your presence and mold us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we continue to seek after you and to be molded more and more into your image, Lord. May we just continue to be following faithfully as the sheep of your flock, until the day that you glorify us and take us to your heavenly pastures to live forever and ever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.